0: This is Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hot Forward podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Hey everyone, welcome to the Hot 4 podcast. So I hope you're enjoying the unseasonably warm weather. I was saying to someone the other day, I don't know whether I should feel perturbed by it. Um, Because on one hand, it's great. I love spring and I love the sunshine and the smell of grass and the feeling that I want to drink a beer legitimately in the sunshine um, most of the time. Uh, (laughs) Although one would argue in winter, I kind of have that same desire. Um, But on the other hand, I'm kind of like, this is kind of symptomatic of climate change. So I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that. So let's let's just weigh that one up. But um, how how's it going? I hope I hope business is going well for you uh, this week, and that beer sales are starting to pick up. Now uh, it's been a long, cold, lonely winter. Do 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 do. Let's hope you know what that reference is. If you don't, then you seriously need to get a good music collection. Turn off that bloody Shakira or whatever guff you're listening to. Um, Shakira, who listens to Shakira, anyway. Um, so on this uh, episode this week, and I think this is quite timely because I've I've had a few conversations of late about um, sales and supermarkets and things. Um, but on the podcast this week, we've got uh, Richard Morris, who's joining us and really excited about this episode because uh, Richard's a great guy. He's a brewery consultant and a writer and a beer judge, and he has been around the blocks. He used to work for Courage, I think John Smith, Foster's and all that um, back in the day. He's worked with Fuller's um, on some of their projects and he's just been around the block. Like he knows his stuff, works with Tesco and supermarkets and very, very knowledgeable. And I think he'll get an absolute shed load out of this episode. So but before we dive into the episode, um, how many of you are going to see the BRX?
1: I'm going to see BBRX,
0: so I hope to see you there. Um, I'll be there with my podcasting gear, so be cool to try and get some sort of on-location podcasting done as well. So if you see me, do say hello, and if I see you, I don't know who's listening. It's hard. It's kind of hard to tell, but um, you know, come say hello to me. Um, be great to meet some of our listeners because actually I've had some really great feedback recently and it's really nice to know that you're listening to this podcast and enjoying it so if that is the case then please go on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to podcasts and leave a really nice review Uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so it downloads directly to your device and I don't know if you've seen but I've actually made a new podcast scheme which is the little cover I'm really pleased with that and now it's kind of Or subscribe to our mailing list, uh, just go to hotford.beer. It's on there and you can see a range of other services and articles and stuff that will help you get ahead in your brewing business. So, diving straight into this week's episode now with Richard Morris. This is what I'm referring to as the double IPA episode. Not that it's got anything to do with double IPAs, but I recorded this today and I'm releasing this podcast Today, it's just super fresh, so get involved. So today on the podcast, I'm joined by Richard Morris, who has a very impressive CV. Um, Why don't you tell our listeners, Richard, about who you are and the whole host of uh, food and beverage related things you've done over the many years?
1: Yeah, I'm a very lucky person. Um, I started off my um, career with a, a degree in French and marketing from Lancaster University and enjoyed the marketing side enormously. Had jobs with big companies like Scott Paper and Nabisco, um, and the the Biscuit Company, Jacob's Club, all that kind of thing. And then I really landed on my feet because I got a job in my early 30s when I should have still been just um, filling in uh, forms in uh, triplicate as marketing director of uh, of Courage. Uh, which um, not all your listeners will know about, or, or, <laughs> or, or viewers will know about, but it was a big thing in its time, um, and it was taken over by Elders IXL, which are the uh, Foster's people, and it was an incredible roller coaster. They, they, I remember them standing up at a big meeting at London Airport with all the senior managers they were all very pleased with ourselves uh, you know to have these these good jobs and the guy around elders ixl said well i'm sure you're all very pleased with yourselves you know you've um, um run this business and it's 200 years old this year which it was mm. he said and in those 200 years you and your uh, predecessors and I thought he was going to say, "I've developed, a, you know, a fantastic international business with great brands." He said, "You have done," and these are his words. So you'll have to excuse me; it's him talking, not me. You have achieved absolutely fuck all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> um, which you know, which didn't didn't seem right. But but nobody nobody sort of said anything. We all sat there. I think there's only about two hundred and fifty people. He said, so now what I want you to do is put your hand under your seat, and there's an envelope there. Everybody's got the same content. And the envelope basically said, whatever contract you've got with any of the Courage businesses, it's now with elders, and you can get 28 days' notice like I do. And if you want to fight me, that's fine. We have a team of people in Melbourne who will deal with that for you. And they said, so I think we're probably going to leave it at that because you're going to have to do a bit of thinking, and I don't really have anything to learn from you. Oh, my way. goodness, wow. So anyway, he got put in prison later, so I didn't. Uh, but that's that's a different story. So from that, I worked on that. I then set up my own consultancy, and I've had just so much fun. So I've worked for um, big companies like Heineken. So I set up the uh, the specialist beer thing for them, Caledonian Brewery in Edinburgh mm. for Marston's. Uh, when they went into the off-trade for the first time, which was in the late 90s, and um, Tesco at a similar time when they were really... I remember the first craft beers coming into Tesco from Shepherd Neame. And so I, I, I don't want to think how long ago it was. I'm just very, very old. And everybody said, oh, this will never take on. You know, you can get... This is a 500ml bottle, and that's just under a pint, and you can get four times as much lager for just the same money, so nobody's going to buy this kind of thing. And anyway, it tastes really funny. And Anyway, you know what's happened since. Mm. And um, I've worked for the Science Museum because they have their own beers. Um, Done the Tesco Beer Challenge, Tesco Drinks Awards. Um, All stuff getting people to really engage with beer, to enjoy it. We did one for the Daily Express, which was, uh, they'd done some research and, I don't know, 60% of women in the, for those far-off days said they didn't like beer. And 50% of that 60% said, but they'd never tried it, but they knew they didn't like it. So we did stuff at railway stations, testing people out, saying, right, tell me what this is. It was, it was actually a um Belgian sparkling uh, beer, mm. uh, and women said, and men said, it's um, champagne or it's a sparkling wine, and it was beer. So you know all that kind of stuff. So it's been a real roller coaster. I am now semi-retired because um, I worked quite hard for forty years. I thought you know yeah. you deserve an afternoon off now and again, <laughs> uh, and I did a lot of traveling as well. And so I'm yeah I'm semi-retired. What I'm enjoying doing, I'm helping some local craft brewers. I still uh, work a little bit with Heineken. Heineken deserves, I think, a better press than it gets. Right. Um, because the, the Heineken, um, I always think of the the the, the advert from, um, Marston's with the. Uh, what what, what, are you, what are you scared about, like a lager, boys, that you might taste something, which was uh, an advert that they did. Mm. Um, and there's still quite a lot of people who think lager of any description can't be a good beer, but I think we're kind of getting over that now. And I do courses showing people what different lagers are available from the mass-produced ones, which are fine for what they are, mm-hmm. Uh, right through to craft lagers from from all over the world. So I do beer tasting evenings called Beers and Banter, and have a lot of fun with it. Silly competitions, win prizes that go back to my time at Fuller. So I, I've got some exclusive prizes that you just can't buy. Oh, wow! Um, come. <laughs> and, and people love it. And then and, and they get in, you know, there are eight beers and they, they pick their favourite and they argue why that's their favourite and everybody else's is it's rubbish. And it's just good fun. Mm. And I'm, I also do uh, beer appreciation. It sounds a bit stuck up, doesn't it, um, on cruise ships. So, again, you get the same thing that even five years ago, and I still get it periodically, five years ago people would say, I really don't like beer. Um, it's a, it's a, I don't always say this, but they think it, it's a bit of a common drink. You know, wines are much more esoteric and special drink than beer. And then when you point out to them, it's a lot harder to make good beer than it is to make good wine, which is, you know, debatable. But I know that to be true. And they listen, and then they try something different, and they enjoy the fun of it. Then you convert people, mm. and very rarely. And I do an exit poll. We very rarely get people who come in as doubters and go out still feeling that way. Yeah. They may not think, "Oh wow, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna drink nothing but beer now." Um, but they, they think actually, the, what they generally say is, "That was better than I thought it was going to be," <laughs> which is <laughs> a, kind of a backhanded compliment, isn't it? Yeah, but it's. Um, it's good stuff. So that's a little bit, in fact, a little lot about me.
0: Great stuff. So when you were starting out as a brewery consultant, um, you know, obviously like your first gig probably wasn't Heineken or Fullers, but like how, how did you sort of um, decide to go into that and then build customers up from there? Yeah. Because um, it's something I do and offer myself as a consultant and, and I I wanted to go into it, but I was a bit worried that people like, you don't know what you've doing, you know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was lucky that my bestest friend, who I worked with because I was a city boy, I don't put that on my CV because nobody likes city boys because they have red braces and even redder cars. (laughs) Um, But but the guy that I worked with at NatWest Markets then became the uh, MD of Marston's in the late 90s, a guy called John Dunsmore, who some people will know. Um, now runs Edinburgh or owns Edinburgh Beer Factory, having been um, chief exec of Scottish and Newcastle. And he sort of took me with him from NatWest Markets to Marston's, and then that got me into contact with Tesco, and then Tesco just wanted everything done for them. Mm. They could see it was a – they still do it. They could see it was a growing market, but it wasn't big enough for them to use their own people. And they didn't think it was worth getting the knowledge to do it. So they they used me on that and other things as a sort of a pathfinder. Okay. Once you've you've done that and you've got um, people like that on your list, it makes it a lot easier to develop it
0: because that touches on one of the questions are gonna ask about supermarkets. So I think the dream for a lot of small independent brewers when they set up is that yeah. they get their beers onto the shelves of national supermarket chains. It's a little yeah. bit like kind of like a, a band getting signed to the major record label. Yes. Um, mm. Now, obviously you've worked with supermarkets. I mean, can you talk, you, you hinted upon it a little bit there, but can you talk us through the sort of buying process from a supermarkets perspective? Yeah. And then um, how would a brewery with big ambitions sort of get, get into that to secure those places on the shelves?
1: First things first, just in, just think of your in mailbox box uh, uh, on your
0: computer I, d- I dread I dread it
1: <laughs> and all the um, requests from people who want to usually yeah. sell you stuff mm. want to buy from you, but it's usually the other way around yeah. What you will do is you will filter those i I don't get any p p i ones anymore, but I used to you know you you think i'm I'm not even going to bother to open this one yeah. because it just doesn't engage with me now the same applies a supermarkets buy on a 12-week cycle so if you want to get your beer listed you have got a 12-week period. assuming you're going into a new 12-week cycle to attract their attention get the basics done and tell them why and this is really really important why your beer should replace an existing beer. Right. And you can even go down to saying, I think for these reasons, our beer, you know, old doodle doodle, will sell better in your stores than something else. And name it and yep. say why. Because they give you, they'll give you 30 seconds on the first thing. So you write and say, and I'm making this up, but it's, a, it's about right. Uh, we've got a great, we've set up a great new brewery. It overlooks the river something or other, Itchen. Um, we've got um, a brewmaster who's come from Australia and, and, and. And it's, it's, unfortunately, generally speaking, it's a big so what from the retailer. Yep. What the retailer wants is for you to say, we are developing a way of selling our product, which is unique. So if, if you can't say, I mean, social media is an absolute boom. So people, uh, some of the people that have done really well, Thornbridge and so on, were very early into social media and they had pubs. So you can say if it sells in our pubs, it will sell in your supermarkets in the area where we have pubs. And that's a way in. Remember, the supermarkets are buying on a number of levels so they're buying from the multinationals <coughs> the ones we talked about earlier yeah. and those deals will be linked across a number of categories so if they're buying from heineken there will be links to soft drinks and other things as well so they are mega negotiations they take place usually once a year and there's more give and take now in the past it was um the supermarket felt it held all the cards and it could be quite harsh they can't do that now yeah. the multinationals are. Are huge you've then got uh, national brewers so the masters group comes into that category so they're a national brewer they've got beer that they sell it everywhere they've got pubs everywhere they've got a proposition which is relatively straightforward and they're clever marketers so they say you know hobgoblin it's a lager thing with you know what you're frightened of you might taste something all that kind of stuff clever advertising big sponsorships blah, blah, blah. Once you get down into, let's say, there's three people with a brewery. What you all you will get, I mean, I once took on um, Exmoor Brewery nationally on day one because they had the, the first of the blonde beers because I was buying the beers there. Yeah. I don't th- that I don't, that never happened again with me, and I don't think it would do now. What you have basically got to say is, and think of uh, world top which is a, a Yorkshire beer, brewed in Driffield or nearabouts, they basically concentrate very heavily on building their local presence. And then the supermarket has an area for local beers, which is bought usually by a separate team. So if you can get them to listen to you, you've got a much better chance than trying to go to the national team. Um, they That local team will have the permission to use certain spaces in the stores in Mm. a certain area. So you've really got a chance now. You can talk to them. You can give them a good story. Brew York's an example, a new brewery in York. You can say, we're selling our beers for these reasons. And it's not just because they're super hop-forward, very complicated with um, traces of tangerine peel and all that kind of thing. You just say, these are great-tasting beers that people like. Of course, the supermarkets make a bigger cash return on a craft beer per bottle than they do on a national beer, generally speaking. Yeah. so you've got to be prepared to accept you've got thirty seconds to convince even the regional team why you will be worth listening to, then have a good proposition, have lots of lots of verbatims, people saying, really, you know this beer is licensees usually." This beer came in, it was our top seller within three weeks, and we've kept it on the bar. We don't usually do that, but we have Yeah, that kind of thing. The the watery stuff, the wishy-washy stuff, which is we think our beer's very special and you should have it, won't work because everybody else thinks that as well. Mm, they want facts
0: and figures, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. Nobody's going to go in and say our beer's pretty average, actually, and it's massively overpriced and... <laughs> People who drink it, I never have one. You know that isn't. You're never going to say that. Mm. But so you've really got to be ready to get onto the positives. If you oversell it, it's a bit like somebody trying to sell something to you. If you oversell it, that is just as bad because you sound desperate.
0: So, what? Give me some examples of overselling it.
1: I'll if you put if you put our beer into twelve store. And this is a real example. If you put our beer into twelve stores, and these are the ones I would like, so you've done your homework, I'll give you your first month's beer free. Now people do that; mm. they say we'll not charge you for the first X months of beer or first month of beer that you sell. Don't ever do that because that basically makes your undervalues your beer. It makes people think that you don't think your beer is worth anything. So, oh, and the other thing about overselling is. And, you, and again, this is really, it's so obvious when it's said. If you say, I think you should stop my beer because Waitrose do, that's, that, well, that's not just overselling, that's just illogical. Because, first of all, to talk about a competitor that you've got into before you got into them annoys them. Why didn't you come to us first? Mm. And if you say, I did, and you turned me down, well, why did we turn you down? Hmm. Uh, you know, you can't win that one, um, and the demographics are different. So it's about somebody saying, you know, we've got, I've got this really nice range, or whatever I want to sell you, but what you really want is a Ford Fiesta. You know, you just, you just out, you're not in the market. Yeah. So I think it have a good story, believe in it, keep it relatively simple, avoid any kind of trite. Ours is the best beer in the region, or we sell more beer in. Uh, on a Saturday night in Sheffield, and anybody else is. not interested, now you're really gonna have to try harder than that, and ultimately, they all, as they should but didn't used to taste test every beer before they put it in right, and they're good at it. you know they have people who are really qualified and competent people to do that yeah um and and I think you've got to be prepared to keep trying as well. Mm.
0: So, what kind of margins then can a brewer expect to receive? Because um, I've I've got a friend who um, I think he's in his seventies and now, and he, he used to run a brewery. And he, he, I mean, he basically once told me getting your beer in a supermarket effectively is like a marketing ploy. It comes out your marketing budget because the margins yeah. are so nothingy. Like, what what could a, a brewery expect to get per unit on average?
1: If you were selling in 330 mils bottles or cans, and the bigger, the five hundred mil tends to be more now for the bigger, the bigger brewers. You're not going to like this. I think that after you've covered your costs, you'll be lucky to make three or four pence a unit on a bottle or a can. Um, and if you mess it up, remember that I'll give you an example. I've asked you as a, as a supermarket to deliver your beer into Depot A at time B. So, Daventry at twelve noon on this coming Monday, if you miss that slot, so that you, you took along and the and the van breaks down or there's a big jam on the motorway, I don't know why, and you're late, they won't let you in, and they won't reorder it, so that beer that you you've prepared for them, which you're all excited about, you may end up not being able to sell it to anybody else. Mm. Because you may have put something on there that makes it, and that, don't do this if you can avoid it, that makes it special for them. They'll love it if you do, mm. uh, if it's a, what's called an exclusive too. But then if it, something goes wrong and it doesn't sell, you're stuck with it. It's duty paid as well by then. So
0: so how much exclusivity could or should a supermarket have over a particular beer? Maybe not the stuff that's being made bespoke for them, but mm. it could, could a supermarket turn around, you know, say um well we'll take your beer but you can't sell it in any other
1: supermarket they were, they do do that um, they've got to be careful because there's there's rules about the competition commission about how much of that you can do if i were buying for them what i would say is when you've got something new different and good come to me first because and then i'd be selling back to you i've got x thousand stores with the biggest retail tesco's the biggest retailer of of, of beer craft and and standard volume beers in the country actually in europe um so i've got i've got a lot to offer you what i don't want to hear is you bring in this new beer old brighton rock and you tell me all about it and then and i'll i'll put a message out to all the people in the field because i have people going around all the time Mm. we find it in asda and sainsbury's because i don't want to be you know the third choice yeah if you've come to me and I've either made you wait too long or said I'd take it and didn't and turned you down, that's different. But when you've got something new and good, you really ought to decide who's the best person to take it. Yeah. And it will generally be speak. It will generally be Tesco who will be the best.
0: Yeah.
1: They'll also. It's a double-edged sword, as I always used to say. If you dine with the sharks, one day they may eat you. You know the the the. the the stuff on the table may not be as tasty as you. So you've got to be really, really sharp. And you've got – I used to find it quite embarrassing because I've been on both sides. The brutal nature of some of the uh, interchanges is quite hard for me because I'm an old softie. Um, and I, I used to buy confectionery for Tesco. And you know, some of the things we had to do with one of the big multinationals embarrass me because i don't like that kind of conflict and that kind of language but in you know, a tesco like other companies talks about jfdi just flipping do it and um it's a hard world yeah it's a hard world
0: so what considerations should a brewery take you know to, to sort of make that final decision um, because obviously, you know, you got to be sounds accredited, and yes. that comes with its own cost and everything. But what at what point should they? How how should you know as a brewer? We're going to go for it.
1: I would have two or three things that you you you, you decide. One, am I clear what volumes I will be required to produce for that company in the first two months? So, if Tesco say they're going, and they will give you a very clear idea, if they say they want, let's say, 20,000 bottles over two months, can I do it without letting anybody else down? That's the first thing. The second thing, and I'm not making this negative, I know lots of great brewers who've done really well and mm. are getting good relationships with supermarkets. The second thing is, how will it affect my relationship with my existing? Um, customers and how will it affect I'll give you an example Our current one on gin because gin's quite a growing market as you know there's a Yorkshire gin firm who sell at very high premiums uh, £35 £40 for 75 centiliters at 40% and they've done very well and that's great and now they've done an exclusive to Aldi at twenty quid. Just, well, we'll see. Yeah. But I know that if I, my daughter runs farmers markets where these guys sell their gin, other people will say, "Well, I don't have to pay the yeah the because <laughs> I can get it for 20. Oh, it's not the same thing. Well, it's not twice as good, is it? This, you know. So that's that's one thing. The final thing is. Be absolutely clear that you understand the mindset of the person you're selling to and take some time to learn that and understand it and talk to people who do know so that you don't go in. And it's a bit like you know going to a dance and saying the wrong thing to somebody. If you say the wrong thing to somebody in a supermarket, they won't let you off, You know, if, it, particularly if you say something that makes it look as though you think other retailers are better than they are. Mm. Touched on, touched on already um, and I think then final thing let's say you will only get a small order to start with and it will be small enough for anybody generally speaking, and I do cheese and deli meat and so on and it's the same with them <clears throat> once you get that small order work on it and supply it as if it's the biggest order you've ever had without letting anybody else down, mm. never let somebody else down to support a new retailer, be albeit supermarkets or enterprise-ins, whatever they call themselves these days. Just don't do that. Put yourself in their shoes. How would you feel if you were waiting for a delivery and then you saw somebody said, well, we couldn't deliver on time because we had to get this order out to Tesco? You know, just don't, don't do that. Just be, yeah, It's it's common sense. But you would be surprised how many people do make that mistake. They're so pleased they've got this big order that everything else goes, you know, to minimal importance. Yeah. Huh. Um, and I generally, and I have a sort of a, a, a scorecard thing which which I can always send to you if if, if you want me to, where you just rate all the different things and then you say, and it's a bit like if, you, if you're buying a new car, or a new house, you know, how does it score on all these things? 40 is the top score it could get. It's got to get 32 or more before I go ahead you can do that the same with whether you're going to supermarkets one thing I would strongly recommend people don't do is go to an agency unless they have absolute certainty that that agency will have the right mindset to deal with their product because you're giving your baby away yeah and if you find that it's you know it's it's not being looked after it's quite hard to withdraw from the from the relationship mm. Um, and damage may have been done that you can't rectify because they've said things on your behalf that you wish they hadn't. So just keep hold of it as long as you can, and when it starts to go well, enjoy it. What, what te- I talk about Tesco a lot, but I do know the others. Celebrate success. Make everybody around you and the suppliers and the bloke who sends in the bottles or, so ju- you know, this is going really well, we're enjoying it, but just keep it nice and level. So because it can turn around the other way as well. But, you know, Leeds Brewery, I know this area better now than than others. People who just keep at it and adopt a sensible approach do well. You're just going to keep your head screwed on.
0: So over the many years that you've been involved in the beer industry, how, how have you seen it evolve over time with sort of working with the breweries that you've worked with?
1: I, if I go back to when I started, then four or five breweries controlled 90% of the market. Um, and the reason was they owned the pubs as well. Their area, as you probably know, was uh, 30 miles. So, generally speaking, 30 miles around the brewery was where they, their key business, and that goes back to Victorian times. That's the distance a dray could do in the day and, and come back again as well. Um, See, so and then they all got gobbled up and went into the the couragees of this world and and all the rest of it. And then the government stepped in with the beer orders. I don't have strong views one way or another about them. We we handled it very well at, at Courage uh, or um, Fosters as it became, um, but not everybody did. And I think the beer orders actually did. I think they probably did more harm than good. Because you got a different kind of big company. So you got big retailers. Bass gave all the pubs to the new enterprise business in the late nineties, Ted Tuppen and Co. literally, you know, for a pound each, because they couldn't have the <coughs> they couldn't have the brewery and the pubs because of the rules and they didn't work out how to you no know, anyway. So I think that was um, a time when real innovation wasn't wasn't required all my effort as marketing director went on advertising and marketing multinational brands. And I wouldn't really expect somebody in Hull to want something different to somebody in Essex because it's all beer in the end, isn't it?
0: Hmm.
1: Um, Which, of course, strictly speaking, it is. But since then what you've got is you've got the beer orders, You've got quite a lot of money. You know, Brewdog's got a lot of international money in it. It's not just two lads who set up with a dog in, in Ellen or wherever it was in, in Scotland. Um, And so you get a, a, a lot of vitality in the middle of the market. Um, So Brewdog, Thornbridge, one or two others are quite big. Marston's is still quite big. That's got quite a lot of vitality. But then you've got a whole new category of and I don't know what craft beers are, I do in the States because there's an official description of them, but you get a lot of people who are enthusiastic, who set up uh, smallish breweries, and I'll, I'll mention Brewer York again because they're they're local to me and I know the people quite well, and they just make it work. Uh, Magic Rock, you know, in, yeah, in, in yeah. Yorkshire, that is another one. Um, and those people just don't let anything slow them down. They just keep going, and I think they've got an integrity that people find quite refreshing. Mm. So now, I, I I can't remember, I did it recently, but I can't remember what the um, figures are for craft beer um, penetration in the whole market, and it's difficult, again, because there's not a proper definition of it, but it's quite high, and on export, the craft producers are doing better than the big one, the big producers are. Um, and I, I work on projects in China for, for UK craft and it's it's intriguing they will pay in, in uh, Beijing at a, at a stall in, in, in one of the squares the equivalent of £12 pounds a bottle for a 330ml can of, of UK brewed craft wow. beer and they don't earn three times as much as we do Not yeah. times as much as we do so it's a true premium product that people enjoy so there's from having been controlled by a number of people like me, because I had a chauffeur and a this, and, a, you know, it was a very easy life in many ways. You used to have a big lunch every day in the director's dining room. You've now, that's largely gone. Those companies still exist, but they don't operate in that OTT kind of way. But you have got lots of other people who are forcing their way up. And I don't know how many succeed to get to the level of, of a magic rock, Um I could work it out probably. But it never stops. So when you think, right, this is – I'm thinking of a particular one around here. They had a good year in 2016, and they've had two bad years since, not any of the ones I've mentioned. And that's the nature of it. And it's hard when you think, well, actually, I've just got – I've put all my savings into it, and we've all driven the van and all that, and we're doing, we were doing really well, and then something happens mm-hmm. that – that stops them doing as well, so it, it's quite hard. Um, I think one thing that really concerns me is the acquisition of some of the more interesting craft brewers by particularly by American concerns. Yeah. In um, you know, a Sierra Nevada, I've watched from the beginning, and I and I like them. I like their attitude to their staff. I like the fact that they're very interested in the environment. You know, the new brewery on the east coast is has been built with the environment first and foremost, um, and that they don't come under the category of, of of some of the others that just snap up brewers that have got a good local market in Michigan or whatever. Um, that worries me because I think again, I'll give a different example. Just I I, I got a new car recently, which was. German in inverted commas but it has it has components from 26 different com- uh, countries now that may not matter but somehow it just doesn't seem quite so good I don't necessarily want every single bit of it to be made and put together in Germany but I'd have liked more than half of it and less than half of it is actually German produced so there's things like that when you just think is this really what I bought into and I think that's happening with craft, you yeah. know, Camtown, Town, various others. Uh, Sharp's is, the, is probably the best example. Where, and this annoys me, so I'm going to go all annoyed and it is. Yeah, go for it, go for it. <laughs> Steaming, are you ready? I take my hearing aids, <laughs> book, book look people. Otherwise, they'll <laughs> our hearing aids will explode. Sharp's have got a big site in um, Cornwall, as you know. Yep they were having their beers produced by the company that finally came out of the woodwork for quite a long time. That company, Coors, whatever they call themselves, Molson Coors, um, made this press release because I am a British Guild of Beer Writers member. Mm. Long, so I get press releases from different people. And they said, we are moving the largest part of the production to Burton because we don't have the capacity to produce the requirements in Cornwall. Yeah, I know, but if you get an aerial shot of the brewery, they've got 20 acres around them that they own. A lot of people in Cornwall need the work because it's, it's quite a poor area, a yeah. seasonal business. And I thought that was just the meanest thing ever because um, they'd promised they would keep be true to the roots of the business, mm. and they're not. And I think that's why sometimes people says, and it says rock, you know, uh, rock corn on the bottles, but it doesn't say brewed in Burton on Trent. Um, And I think it probably should. I just don't think people, when they find out, I mean, a lot of people say, so bloody what? You know, it's a a nice beer. I enjoy it. I don't care where it's brewed, really. Um, But I think some people do care. Um, And when you go to the brewery now, it's, not running at full capacity, of the Cornish brewery. I don't think that's fair. I think people
0: are. do care. You know, I, I was out with um, my in-laws the other day, and my father-in-law had a um, a pint of Doom Bar, and he meant, you know, he said, "Oh, yeah, was, yeah, brewing, brewing Cornwall." And I said, "Well, I actually, it's not brewing really Cornwall." I told yeah. him where it was brewed, you know, and he was surprised by it. And um, you know, I, I think that's why, obviously, a lot of macro breweries get a lot of flack, You know, because yeah. it's, it's 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 not very upfront. Um, and you were sort of saying about the smaller brewers, your Magic Rocks and your Northern Monks, you know, having having sort of the integrity yeah. um, to run with it. What, what do you think macro brewers, not to name names, but <laughs> there aren't that many of them. Um, what, what do you think macro brewers can learn um, from micro brewers? But then inversely, what can micro brewers learn from the big boys?
1: I don't think macro brewers have the mindset to learn anything from anybody else. Right. Um, and I've worked for Coca-Cola as well, and they are, and they don't learn from anybody else. Although they're making some big acquisitions now, they've bought Pret a Manger, they bought um, Costa, so on and so forth. So that's quite interesting. But they tend to, it, I know I've got some books on my bookshelf from the big American um, gurus on on marketing and business, and they tend to work to those standards. So it's about scope, it's about making your people feel valued, blah blah blah. And so I think they, they they work on tram lines. So I don't think they learn much from the craft or vice versa because they are their business model is so different. Now, the Carlsberg Brewery moved from the centre of Copenhagen so they could use the site for other things. And they put in a fantastic um, brewery uh, on the edge of Copenhagen which is really super duper and all the rest of it but it has no soul so they've now got a craft brewery side in Copenhagen that they run with Mikkelen you know so yeah. they're yeah. learning that actually you, you can get some energy out of working with with good people but i think the difference between the two is so huge and the the um distrust of each side to the other is so great that I think people are just going to have to go down their own track, really, and and not not have too much contact. If somebody comes along to one of the breweries we've mentioned in Yorkshire with a £50 million cheque because they want the name, it's going to be hard to say no, and I can understand that, and I wouldn't say no. But I think it pushes the, the shape of the industry out. It's happening in France as well and South Africa. So ones that have done well um, just get subsumed into some bigger organisation. And it's easy to see why, because when they put out their monthly list of beers to their licensees, and the licensees have to buy from that list if they're mm-hmm. tired, they can say, well, we can get your craft beers from us because... A, we've saw some, but actually we we produce some as well. And so that's quite a, a a key determinant of the success of the relationship between the big brewery and the the pub that's tied to it. Um, but I find it all I'm getting old. I find it all very concerning that that little bit of magic. there used to be a thing that we said that if it's a craft brewer, if you can ring the brewery and you can get to speak to the head brewer within five minutes, yep. that's a craft brewer. And if they say, "Well, you know, we'll put you through to the production director's assistant, and he or she'll take a message," that isn't a craft brewer. Mm. Or they may say, "Well, he's away today, but tell me what what we can do, and we'll get we'll get back to you." It might not be him, but at least they, they they do the do the decent thing. So I think, um, yeah, there is something that smaller brewers can learn. And it's ever so simple and it's just control your costs Yeah, because that's what the big brewers do supremely well. Mm. Uh, you know, I've just been on a visit to Cronenberg in France. Um, they've got a big uh, R&D plant, for brewery that is pure research and development. But the, a large part of the work that is done there is cost control wow. to make it because of well, partly because of environment as well. You know, if you're venting valuable heat into the atmosphere that you could use again, then even if you have to put a bit of expensive kit in to do it, then that's a that's a calculation that you've got to make. So when your accountant, in your internal or external accountant, says you've got to watch your costs because hop prices are going up and so and you just say, look, we're going to put in as many hops as we like. Think twice. Don't don't make a beer you're not proud of but be prepared to apply a premium to that beer that is consistent with you making a profit.
0: So how, how for smaller independent brewers would you sort of suggest they control their cost? I mean, I was having a few conversations this week about this kind of thing, how, um, you know, because with the economies of scale, obviously large brewers, you know, yeah. better deals, just kind of the whole thing is more efficient and runs cheaper. But for, yeah. for, for smaller brewers, you know, a lot of the time it's kind of like if they're on a rotation basis and the, and mm. they're, they're mainly a cast producing brewery and then um, they might only get in that pub once every eight yeah. to ten weeks. Yeah. And then um, a lot of the landlords will basically want to pay what they want to pay for it yeah. based upon the ABV. So if I phone up and say, oh, it's a 3.8% beer, and you know, it's dry hot within an inch of its life. And the landlord's was like, Ooh, not, not paying that for that. You know, yeah. um, you know, now I obviously know with my sort of skills in sales, how to combat that. But a lot of, people that have started breweries so i'm ranting now don't because they're brewers they're not yeah. they're, they're not salesmen they're not into marketing they're they're brewers so yeah. you know it's just kind of like oh well i, I only managed to get 40 pounds for a cask you know like how, how would you then sort of suggest the breweries um control their costs
1: and control their pricing i i think you've got to have somebody be it a partner wife husband member of the family, somebody that you've known for years who just works out all the cost issues and says, I don't want to discuss this with you anymore. If we sell this particular beer at less than £65 for a nine, then it's not worth doing. And if we go below 59, we're actually making a loss. And I'm not not—I'm not here to discuss, I'm telling you that. So it is better... To give it away and not pay the duty, you know, mm, give it away, yeah, yeah. than to pay the duty on it and then sell it for less than it costs you to produce. And this all have a marketing budget and say, I need to, and, and be very clear what you need to get for each beer. It's not difficult, it really isn't. It'll vary with volume, but not much on the, on the volumes we're talking about. You can say, well, I'm going to have a marketing budget which is paid for out of that top bit of, say, £10 a, a cask and I will use that as long as that £10 is available. And once we've run out of that budget on a monthly basis, then I have to stop because I stop, I'm stop. i an absolute so-and-so. If someone says to me, um, and it happens a lot, while you're doing this for us, could you just do that and... And this is what happens with when you're selling beer, and and when you say, well, yeah, but there'll be an additional cost. You go, oh, well, it's not going to take you long, is it? No, but time's all I've got. Yes. To, so if it take, you know, you know what what my hourly rate is, you know, which is fifty thousand pounds an hour. So if uh, okay. if I gave you if I gave you half an hour, you know, it'd be the cost of a decent car. No, really, you've got to be really strict, because otherwise you come over as defeated. Mm. The other person says, "Right, you you want say you want sixty eight pound for a nine at four and a half percent." I don't know the figures anymore. That might be right to make a a few bob um, and and ensure you get your casks back, your empty containers back. And and it's like something out of bargain hunt. And they say, "Well, you know, (laughs) yeah, well, I I can get that for forty quid." Well, you can't get this for forty quid because I make this and I don't sell it for that to anybody. Well, what's your best price then? and that's when you really got to think carefully. Mm. Because if that that person, and you're going to say, not three quid off, which is probably all you should be doing, unless you've priced it ridiculously high, and then you don't deserve to, to succeed, to be honest, be sensible in what you're asking. So I can do three quid if this this and this happens. And if he says, well, do you know what? I I, I thought you were a bit of a soft touch. You won't say that, but you'll be thinking it, or she will walk away. You've got to put your time into working with people who have your mindset yep. and who are prepared to be as honourable um, and committed about you, their business as, as you are about yours. If all they're doing is putting in beer that they can get cheaply, that is not a recipe for success in their business. They've got to have the really best ones if their customers are going to come back. So I think you're going to be quite hard and plan it really well. Yeah. But. It, I know local brewers here, when I, I give this speech, sometimes a speech to SEBA members, and they say, Well, you know, we haven't got time for all that. We've got to be out there. The Monday morning phone calls, eight o'clock, you know, what do you want this week? I say, Well, I think you've proved my point for me. You know, if it's if it's all about can you do it for, well, wow, that's 60 quid, can you do it for 40? You've, you walk away. It's hard, but it's the only way. Yeah, totally.
0: Now the the may about 50 minutes into the podcast the main reason I I reached out oh, to you um was because you work with Fullers yeah. um and although it caught many of us by surprise I remember you sort of saying on a Facebook group that it didn't and I I'd, I'd love to pick your brains on um the sort of background behind that and why it didn't surprise you and
1: I think it disappointed me and shocked me it didn't surprise me because Could it be fair? I'm quite emotionally involved with Fuller's because they were my first biggest client, big client, and the one I had the longest. I had nearly thirty years with them, Mm. doing different things. I think that the world moved on, and 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 there were like six or seven different things that Fuller's could do, and if they're and um, they didn't they couldn't do all of them. Either because they didn't have the will, which is quite an important thing, or the money, which is less likely because they're quite they've got quite a lot of money. When one of the Fuller family moved, he had fifteen Pantechnicans as he called them, to move his furniture. <laughs> yeah. So he could sell five of those worth, couldn't he, and, and buy a new brewery. <laughs> um so I think what happened was um and I'm going to be I'm going to be as honest and straight as I can be without getting myself into some kind of trouble. Oh, I don't care really. What could they do to me? Uh-huh. Um, I think people got in charge of the business at the top level who didn't really understand the culture of Fuller's, or understood it and didn't value it anymore. So they thought a family brewery based in West London that did everything was not something to treasure. And it was difficult. Because when I was there, there were, there were always, like, when the government has this spending round and, you know, the, the Social Security people want some more money and the hospitals want some and Defence want some and all the rest of it. That was the same at Fuller's. And all the different departments used to fight for what money was available. And that's not unusual. I don't think there's anything really too wrong with that. But I think the comment was made by someone who's much closer to it than I am To have stayed in brewing, we would have had to put so much money into investing, because they bought Dark Star and then Mm. on the bonfire, didn't they? Um, I think we would have have had to spend so much money on investment in brewing-related things that we couldn't do anything else, and I think that's the key to it. I don't regret that, but I can understand it. Um, And I think I said to you before that I want to be... um, understanding and even-handed but it doesn't stop me feeling sad about it um because i don't know that the the chiswick site the brewery site and the offices which is right on the thames as in their advertising that is valued at over 300 million on its own as a development site even though it's got some listings on it you can still do stuff with it so it seems almost as if you've given everything away for less than the value of the of the land. That figure may be wrong. It's only stuff that I've read. But I think they just thought, We can't juggle all these balls. We really make lots and lots of money out of pubs and hotels, and they do. So we're just going to do that. And it took them nearly two years to make the decision, finally. Right. And it went it was a bit Brexity. It went one way and then the other and somebody then said something else and whatever. So they did work very hard on it. But I've, you know, I've got, I think I said I've got. I don't know if you can see this Imperial Stout. Um, this is the last Imperial Stout that would be made by John Keeling, and I'll, I'll take it out of the. um John Keeling, you may you may know him. I don't know. Great personality, head brewer. This is just a, such a great statement about a company that cares about brewing great beer. Mm. It's, it's a ridiculous ABV, 10.7, uh, um, which means it attracts a lot of duty, which they paid. It's bottle-conditioned. It's in an awkward bottle, but they didn't care. They wanted the best imperial stout that they could do, and that's one of the last bottles of it. And I'm sad about that because I can't imagine that Asai are going to do that. Yeah. All I remember Asai for, because I worked in Japan, was they – Super dry, say super dry. Its big claim to fame was, and it became the biggest selling beer in Japan in six weeks. Was it didn't make your um, breath smell? So when you went home, you know, and your wife or partner or whatever said, you know, what have you been doing? Have you been drinking a lot? Oh no! And he didn't smell of beer because it didn't, and it doesn't try it. Um, And that doesn't kind of give me as much fun as that.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) so we'll see we'll see what happens but i think basically they've kept the, the they've got the, the the brand names and the license to aside for, for in perpetuity at no charge so they haven't really got the brand names because they've they've signed them over yeah but i think it was just too complex and they thought if we have i'm making this up 10 million pounds to invest which it may be about right and then the next year we can buy a big lot of extra third wanglers for the brewery, or we can buy three or four really great London pubs.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I think we'll do the latter. And those decisions kept coming thick and fast. And there was nobody there who, well, no, that's not fair. It, you couldn't argue against it. It was, it was a, it was a logic, but it, it doesn't please me. Mm. Even, even Europe has some logic to it, but that doesn't please me either. But it's, it's happened.
0: Yeah. So. Um, on that bombshell, my last question is sort of t- <laughs> t-
1: ties into that.
0: Um, so, I mean, where, where do you see the, the beer industry going over the next few years, particularly with Brexit? Um, yeah. You know, so where do, where do you see it going, particularly for, you know, UK brewers and how that's going to impact them?
1: I've seen a tremendous uh, improvement in the quality <coughs> sorry, of support from the DIT Department of International Trade. It used to be a real old boys club um, and I had some good lunches with them over the years. You know, that's fine. I don't mind a bad lunch. You can't see my fat stomach, but it's there somewhere. Um, All due to good lunches and bags of crisps. And they didn't do very much. They work really hard now. So if you've got aspirations to export to um, anywhere, but particularly, I do Southeast Asia for them, then the support that's available is fantastic and brexit has actually forced that because the government has seen 2 years ago when it all kicked off that all the easy markets might slip through our fingers so people who put the effort in with the dit and i recommend it to anybody who's brewing and they don't export just go and talk to them because they're very very good
0: in the next 5 years then with sort of mainland where, where did you sort of see it panning out just in terms of what people can be drinking do you think because there's some argument that you know oh, the, the quote unquote craft bubble is or has burst and yeah. others say no it hasn't That'd be ridiculous there's massive room for growth but i mean where, where do you sort of see that panning out
1: uh, i think there's room for growth Let, let's imagine that we've got a continuum this is really and, and i do this on my beer tasting events so this is extreme. So that's Belgian sours and gurs and all that kind of stuff. And then in the middle, you've got interesting, well-crafted. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that top mm-hmm. category. I love it. And I love the face on some, some people's face. They go, oh, you know, what have you done <laughs> to Like Rapper? you know. What, what, oh, how dare you serve me such a thing? Then in the middle, you've got a big area of people who want really well thought out well-crafted beers that aren't very extreme mm. you've got the the cooking lagers and, and bitters from whoever get that middle area right do the other stuff because it's fun um, and you get you know to say you've got avocado and pineapple peel in it and all that it that's great but get some really great tasting um, bitters and lagers and porters and all that kind of stuff where people just say, this is just the best beer I've ever tasted. They won't say that necessarily with the the right-hand category, my right hand. But if you get that right, and I I would give us an example, Black Sheep years ago, they really made Yorkshire Bitter come to life. So I had John Smith's, there was Tetley's, but the, the stuff that came from Black Sheep just had more finesse more depth of flavour, better head retention; those are the things that give you the volume market. And some smaller brewers say to me, "I don't want to. I don't want to sell a lot of beer. I want to sell a lot, I want to sell the kind of beer I like." Well, that's fine, but you know, who's going to buy your next VW Golf for you? Yeah,
0: oh, the, it it does feel a little bit sometimes that with social with social media in particular, you you know, you can go on Instagram and and you know, really dial into to what is what you've just described, a, a niche, a very niche market, you know, yeah. um, massive imperial stouts with, you know, all kinds of different coffee beans that have been fermented yeah. in squirrels, you know, whatever yes. it is. Um, and those are beers that you experience uh, more than beers that you drink. But, you, you know, yeah. there's a huge market for beers that you drink. And one of the yeah. things I have to remind people again and again I speak to is kind of like, most people aren't like me and you that are really, <laughs> really into beer. Most people just want Appear.
1: I think the thing is as well, they want to feel, and this is this massive number of people who must be not be reviled because they don't want to be in that mm. far category. They just want to feel that somebody is going to give them something that's special. That's why waitros works well. It works well in the north against all all the odds because they make people feel special. Of course, it's a bit more expensive, but but but. So they they compete well, you know, in York where I live um, and everybody thought they would fail because they were seen as southern biased. you know, we don't like southern people around here. But they just did everything to make it welcoming. You get a free newspaper, you know, you get a free coffee, blah, blah, blah. And they carved out a sizable niche and that's what you need to do as a brewer. Carve out a sizable niche and enjoy working in it. And, and don't that feel sorry that you're not selling your really um, way out ones in large volumes because that's not what they're for anyway. Yeah. You shouldn't expect that anyway. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Richard. Um, if people Thank want to you. find out more about you and your services and, and your beer tasting, how can they do that?
1: I think they should just probably email me. Um, and I'll then send, and they can say what sort of thing, and I'll send them examples. So it's Richard Morris, one word, M O R I C E, at live.co.uk. And then I'll try and um, find some interesting things.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, well, Thanks for your time. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot Ford podcast this week. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. Follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and visit our website hotforward.beer for more articles, insights, and a range of services aimed at helping you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Until next time, cheers.